In this weekend's episode, three segments from this past week's Washington Journal. First, a conversation with Republican Governor Spencer Cox of Utah, chairman of the National Governors Association. We discuss his Disagree Better initiative and top agenda items at this week's Gathering of Governors here in Washington. Then, two segments from Washington Journal series this week on Black History Month. Author Hannibal Johnson discusses the history and legacy of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. And later, DePaul University professor Jason Hill discusses the national debate over the teaching of Black history and the issue of reparations. Hi, it's Kayla from C-SPAN. Imagine 45 years ago when there was just a handful of television networks. C-SPAN first went on the air bringing an unfiltered view of government directly to America's living rooms. No spin, no commentary, just pure democracy in action. And it's Greta from C-SPAN. It was a bold experiment. We finally had a front row seat to Congress, the White House, and the campaign trail, all without government funding. As we celebrate 45 years and a legacy of unfiltered access, we ask for your support of a donation in honor of our four decades of service. Your gift, no matter how big or small, will help maintain this vital resource for access to the democratic process. You can help ensure another 45 years of witnessing history unfold and empowering citizens to be informed and engaged in the political process. Visit cspan.org slash donate today and join our 45th anniversary campaign. Thank you for supporting C-SPAN, your unfiltered view of government. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to make your gift of support. Thank you. Next, our conversation with Republican Governor Spencer Cox of Utah, chairman of the National Governors Association. So you're here in Washington for the National Governors Association winter meeting. Can you remind us of what the National Governors Association is, what its role is, and what's the purpose of these meetings? Uh, of course. So the National Governors Association uh, is the association for all of America's governors. Uh, of course, the, the 50 states and uh, and several U.S. territories. And we, we get together several times during the year to uh, talk about the issues that are important to uh, to every state. It's a great opportunity for us to learn from each other. We we still believe that the states are the uh, the laboratories of democracy. We we actually believe that the, that's where innovation and, 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 and true policymaking is happening. It's certainly not happening in Washington, D.C. right now. And uh, and so this is a, a really cool opportunity for us, Republicans and Democrats. It is a, a bipartisan association. We we take turns governing. So I'm the chair this year. Uh, Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat of, of Colorado, is my my great vice chair, and uh, he'll be the chair starting in in July. And it's it's one of those rare rare institutions that still exists, Mimi, in in the United States, where uh, we we actually get along pretty well and and we work together. And, and I wish all of America America could see the uh, the conversations we're having this week. Well, let's talk about uh, getting along better because you um, have an initiative. Every um, chair will have an initiative, but yours is called Disagree Better. So can you tell us what that really means? Sure. Yeah. So as, as I was looking at, at what we could do, um, I, I was focused on, on health care, reducing the cost of health care, looking at energy policy and some other issues. And, and, then, and then it just became very clear to us that we, we can't solve the, the greatest problems uh, affecting our country if we, uh, if, if we all hate each other. And, and sadly, uh, experts will tell you, and I, I think every, every American can sense this, that we have become much more polarized over the, over the past 20 years as a country. Our inability to 
to even have debate and conversations about issues, let alone find solutions, uh, is, is, is really in trouble right now. So the whole idea behind disagree better is exactly that, that we can disagree and we should disagree. This is not just another kind of be nice or civility initiative, although we certainly need more of that. It really is about staying true to our values, but doing it in a way that, uh, that doesn't demonize the, the other side, that doesn't show contempt for people who have, uh, who have a different points of view, which, which then allows us to have a productive discussion. And uh, I'm grateful to have so many governors who have jumped in with, with both feet. We've been filming ads um, all, all across the country, uh, and, and I've got about 22 governors so far who have, who have done this. They've, they filmed ads, and they have to film the ad with someone from the other side of the aisle, an, another mayor, a governor, uh, a, a congressperson, uh, somebody who, who disagrees with them. And they talk about how they can, they can still be friends and, and have those disagreements. And, and again, it's not just about policymaking, it's about our dinner tables. About 30% of Americans report that they have lost or given up on a family relationship because of politics. Uh, that's, that's new and, and it's, very, it, it's, it's very destructive to our country. How did we get to this point, uh, Governor Cox? You said that this was relatively new. You know, people are losing family ties over politics. Uh, we've seen what happens in Washington uh, when they're disagreeing in, in, a, in a way that's not very nice. So how did we get to this point? Yeah, there's 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 been a lot of research on on how we got here. I'll I'll, t I'll try to give you just kind of a, a couple of the the, the high points. So, uh, about 20 years ago, a famous book called Bowling Alone was was written by Dr. Robert Putnam at Harvard, where he started to know this trend that more people were bowling than ever, but they, the bowling leagues were falling apart. So the, these kind of institutions and community building events that would bring people together have started disappearing in our country. Um, we know that religious attendance is down. Those places where people would gather and get to know people and have friends, we're, we're losing those, whether it's, it's bowling leagues or, or, or you know, civic, uh, civic institutions that come together, uh, the, those civics clubs, uh, religion, we're, we're losing those. So people are lonelier than ever before. Every poll shows this, that um, Americans have fewer friends than they've had in, in the past. And then at the same time, now we're wired for connection. We, we need those close associations. You, you have the, the internet and, and social media. So we, we're, we're losing are our true friends, but we're finding these these fake connections online. And uh, when when we we need that connection, we're looking for our tribes. And sadly, we're finding tribes in politics. Politics has become a religion for for many people. Um, politics has has infiltrated religion for for so many people. And uh, and and when that happens, now we've elevated our identity as as political animals um, instead of the other things. You know, when I was growing up, I had no idea who the Republicans and Democrats were in my town or in my, my congregation. Uh, we, we knew each other as a, Americans first or Utahns or you know your religious affiliation, our sports teams. We were dads or moms, all of those things first. You know, Republicans and Democrats were down the list, 15th, 20th, somewhere there. Now, um, too often, it's it's the number one way we uh, we kind of identify each other, and and that that is incredibly divisive. We 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 were uh, not meant to be political animals, and uh, it's it's driving a wedge between us as Americans. Well, let's talk about the meeting that's going on today and tomorrow at the National Governors uh, Association Winter Meeting. What are your top uh, policy areas? What are your top concerns for this meeting? Yeah. 
Yeah, so of course we'll be talking about this this disagreeing better, and and, and I just have to say um, we're very fortunate. We actually have two Supreme Court justices, a, a liberal justice and a conservative justice. So Justice Sotomayor and Justice Barrett, who will be on stage. This is rare; they don't do this very often. They will be on stage talking about that institution and how how they disagree with each other and and still are friends and and figure a way through that. We're talking about the the uh, the, the rising cost of housing in in our country unsustainably. The the lack of housing affordability and attainability for so many Americans. That will be a, a top priority. We will have discussions around things like AI that, that are, you know, are, are growing very quickly and, and uh, causing concern, I think, for, for a, lot, a lot of Americans and, and certainly for policy makers. And so those, those are just some of the top issues we'll be dealing with as we, uh, we meet today. Lots of discussion uh, with the executive committee last night around uh, things like, uh, like, like immigration and uh, federal regulations and, and and things that are, are really hurting states. That was Republican Governor Spencer Cox of Utah, chairman of the National Governors Association. Next, a discussion of the history and legacy of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. We're joined by Hannibal Johnson. He's the author of Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Historic Racial Trauma. Hannibal Johnson, what and where uh, was Black Wall Street for viewers who may not know? So Black Wall Street is the historic African-American community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, created during an era of, of segregation in around 1906. It, it's really a neighborhood within uh, the context of, of the city of Tulsa. And what happened in that neighborhood now 103 years ago? Well, the neighborhood is referred to as Black Wall Street for the incredible black entrepreneurship and commerce that existed in the community. Really a plethora of business and commercial establishments, um, a group of black professionals, doctors, lawyers, dentists, accountants, et cetera, occupied this relatively small 35 square block uh, area in Tulsa that it butted downtown Tulsa separated by the Frisco tracks. And many people may be aware of the signature calamity that occurred here in 1921, referred to as the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, when the black community was almost obliterated uh, in this mob frenzy of, of racialized violence. How many people died and what started the violence? So most experts believe that somewhere between 100 and 300 people were uh, killed in, in, in the massacre. Hundreds more were injured. Uh, scores of homes and businesses were destroyed. We know that at least 1,250 uh, private homes were, were uh, destroyed during the, the massacre. And the causes of the massacre really are many and, and varied. It's important to understand the national context for this violence. Racial violence was occurring all throughout the United States during this period. In fact, two years prior, 1919, James Weldon Johnson of the NAACP referred to the summer involved 1919 as Red Summer. And red was a metaphorical reference to the blood that flowed in American streets because of racial violence. The other thing that's happening throughout the United States during this period is lynching a form of domestic terrorism aimed primarily at African-Americans. So we have this kind of racial crucible um, that exists throughout the United States, uh, also certainly exists in, in Tulsa. In Tulsa, we have a prosperous black community uh, really sitting on land that was desired by uh, white leadership in the community. 
for railroad purposes, for other commercial purposes. We have jealousy um, of the white community with respect to the black community because uh, this was a period during which the ideology of white supremacy reigned supreme. So to have these black people being successful, owning homes, driving cars, wearing beautiful clothes was simply unacceptable in the minds of some folks in Tulsa. And then, you know, people are generally familiar, I think, with the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, which had an enormous presence throughout Oklahoma during the decade of the 1920s. That was a factor. Add to the mix the media, and in particular, one local media outlet, a daily afternoon newspaper called the Tulsa Tribune. We have this, this sort of tinderbox or powder keg in Tulsa, needing only some sort of catalyst to ignite uh, the, the racial violence that occurred on May 31st and June 1st of 1921. You mentioned a newspaper, uh, the Tulsa World, earlier this month, uh, a, a special feature on Black History Month, notable Oklahomans and state history. Uh, you are mentioned as one of those notable Oklahomans for uh, your work on researching and writing about the Tulsa race massacre. They write, uh, your work has played a big role in bringing new attention to a subject long ignored. With over 100 people dead, a thousand buildings destroyed, this massacre that happened. How is that, how does something like that get to be ignored? It gets to be ignored um, really as a deliberate decision on the part of people who are in power and occupy positions of, of privilege. Um, Tulsa, when the massacre occurred in 1921, was on an upward trajectory. It ultimately became known as the oil capital of the world. So a lot of folks in Tulsa, particularly in white Tulsa leadership during that period, wanted to minimize the tragedy of the massacre uh, and to burnish the reputation of the city of Tulsa. So for that reason, it was swept under the carpet. Uh, in the black community, we have to think about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And that that is part of the reason in the black community, even in some circles, the massacre was not discussed and minimized if it was discussed. And then the people who were empowered to create curricula for our schools uh, made the deliberate decision not to include that as part of what Oklahomans learn about Oklahoma history. So for decades, this history was largely kept under wraps. When did we, Un when did we first get the term Tulsa race massacre? When was that incident first referred to with those words? When the incident occurred, these incidents throughout the United States were referred to as race riots. And within the last 10 years or so, um, there was a movement, particularly within the, in the black community, to, to really take charge of nomenclature, to, to change the name to something that many people believed to be a better descriptor of, of what happened from riot to, to massacre. Now we can talk about what other terms might be used to describe this event. And for me personally, I tell people that 
critical thinking around nomenclature is what's important to me. It's not so much what you settle on. It's that you understand that different words have different denotations and connotations and naming something is, is a really important element of, of claiming that event. That was Hannibal Johnson, author of the book Black Wall Street at 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. Next, a conversation on the national debate over the teaching of black history and the issue of reparations. Jason Hill is a philosophy professor at DePaul University, joining us this morning to as part of our series looking at Black History Month. Professor Hill, you wrote a book, What Do Amer White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. How did you answer that question? Well, I answered it by... Um making the claim that reparations had already been paid. And uh, let me define what I mean by reparations, a restitution or making amends for a wrong that has been done um, to those who uh, who have been wrong, wrong by making financial restitution or are the so sorts of payments. And my argument is that reparations by and large have already been made to black Americans through the 1964 Civil Rights Act and through affirmative action programs, through cultural reparations, I argue, have been made through Black Studies programs, and um, basically, you know, the 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 nineteen seventy two Employment Act, and um, that a free society can really go no further in making restitution to a group of people um, who might have been suffering from the residual effects of, of slavery. Are those financial reparations? No, those are not financial reparations because there is no one living today who is a slave. I mean, I was basing um, my notion of reparations on President Reagan's Civil Liberties Act of 1988, in which the state made an apology for the Japanese Americans who were interred during World War II and made a payment of $20,000 to each former detainee still alive when the act was passed. Now, because there are no slaves still alive to, today, uh, there can be no, in, on my reasoning, going by the logic of, of the Civil Liberties Act of 19, 1988, there can be no financial, direct financial compensation. But um, we, we, we can make the, the assumption, of course, on the Jim Crow and, the, and, and continued racism that continued even after Jim Crow, when America was a systemically racist country, when, when white supremacy did reign supreme over the land, that restitution was due to, to black Americans. And I, I, I make the case in my book that the 1964 Act was a form of reparations and the affirmative action programs that followed were meant um, because were meant as forms of, of amends, making amends to a group of people who were suffering from the residual effects of slavery. Earlier this week, University of Texas, uh, uh, Peniel Joseph was on our program and he expressed the argument for financial reparations. Take a listen to what he had to say and we'll have you respond. Uh, until 2020, many people didn't understand about slavery um, and the way in which uh, black labor built the wealth in the United States, but also built up global capitalism. There are extraordinary books about this, including the Harvard Slavery uh, Report, uh, Tamiko Brown-Nagin, uh, including um, uh, Empire of Cotton by Sven Beckert, 
Craig Wilder's Ebony and Ivy. Uh, there's so many, you know, just interesting, important books. Uh, uh, Dinah Ramey Berry's The Price for Their Pound of Flesh um, on, on racial slavery, Sadia Hartman, so, so many others. And when we think about uh, slavery, slavery, it's not just the labor of, of enslaved black people that produces the wealth. Uh, we were used as collateral. We were used as mortgage securities. We were used um, to, to, to provide global investments for everything from Harvard University to banks and businesses. Um, we, we, black people, we created the first financial instruments that lead to private equity and hedge funds and venture capital, not just in the United States, but across and around the world. This is demonstrably proved with reams of evidence. So first of all, it's the fact that we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about that. And once you talk about that, you open up a Pandora's box, but it shouldn't be a Pandora's box that's negative because there has been reparations for other groups in the past, including reparations for the Holocaust. And those things were correct. Those were the morally good, the morally correct choice. Jason Hill? I think he's right, but he's talking about his ancestors. He's talking about the ancestors of Blacks, all of our ancestors. Um, when he says we, but unfortunately the time has passed for that type of reparations. I see when you're talking about the Holocaust and when you're talking about Japanese, you're talking about people where you can ostensibly point to the damage. Like there's a family in Mississippi, there have been families in Mississippi whose uh, properties were confiscated from them. And uh, they could show through the unfair laws that were part of the Jim Crow juridical or judicial system, their lands were confiscated. They were entitled to reparative justice and to reparations. And that's a form of reparations that I respect and that I am an advocate for. But this sort of far reaching collectivist notion that our ancestors were the individuals who built America, this kind of broad reaching language, and therefore we the descendants are now due payments, I don't think has any sort of status in a free society. Um, the, 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 the time for reparations for those individuals have passed because they're dead. When you delved into this and you looked at the Civil Rights Act, which you say is reparations, what did you find, what evidence do you point to in your book? Well, the evidence, I, I made a very startling claim in the book, Greta. I said that the 1964 Civil Rights Act was the greatest form of moral eugenics in America, in the sense that it did violate property rights. And I made a defense for why it was a proper violation of the property rights of whites, because it said to whites, you cannot use your, your property as an extension of your home or of your living room. And you can't say, I'm going to use my property to discriminate against black, given the collusion between the state and whites, and given the way in which whites had played, the state had played a significant role in creating races out of whites. What the, what the 1964 civil rights said to white people was the following. It's not just that you cannot use your property in, in discriminating against blacks. We are going to now make you into non-racists. We are going to re-socialize your sensibilities and make you into proper non-racist individuals. We're going to tweak your sensibilities and make you good moral citizens in your approach to, to Blacks. 
that was a very pivotal moment in American history because it was a moment when the, when the state took it upon itself to make moral agents out of whites, given the grotesque history that existed between blacks and whites. And I think, I think it was a heavy-handed approach, but I think it was proper because civil rights was not a, a gift, really. It was, it was something that was due to, to blacks. It was, a, it was a moral form of reparations and of justice. But I call it a eugenical moment, a proper eugenical moment in history, because it sought to really, it sought to really re-socialize whites into radically different kinds of people, into making them into non-racists by telling them how they could and could not use their property. Today, racism is illegal. And if there are any forms of racism committed against blacks, those claims can be brought before courts of law. And uh and financial recompensation can be can be administered to to the victims of racism. And as a philosopher, what is your thought on that effort in 1964 to change people's white people's sensibilities? Well, as I said, I think it was it, it, it was heavy handed, but it was proper because I mean, I'm, I'm an independent conservative who belongs to no particular party. But I really reject the conservative claim that America was never a white supremacist country, that we never had an ideology of white supremacy, and that America was never a racist country. I think that's a bunch of malarkey. I don't understand. And it's an insult to black people who have suffered tremendously at the hand of white supremacists and at the racist laws that singled out blacks because of their race. So I, I do think it was heavy-handed, but I think that given the 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 the, the construct and the mores and the norms that were codified, anti-miscegenation laws which prevented races from intermarrying, that as a philosopher, I think that um, when you collude with whites and when you definitively create racists, I mean, there were white people, Greta, who wanted to deal with blacks on a strictly commercial basis, on a basis of uh, uh, in, in, in the, into having interpersonal exchanges with blacks, but the states forbade them with interstate commerce laws and so on and so forth. And so they made racists out of white people. The biggest enemy against blacks were not individual whites, it was a state. Walter Williams, a great economist, pointed this out in his book, The State Against Blacks. And so I think that sort of heavy handedness was a reparative moment in American history. It was a eugenical moment, it was necessary. Uh, the work is still ongoing. I am not an enemy of what well, I do not agree with the DEI initiatives because I think they're way too ideological, but I, I was and I still remain uh, an advocate for affirmative action programs as they were originally conceived. Um, that's my defense as a philosopher that as heavy handed as the social eugenical moments of the Sixth of Course Civil Rights Act uh, were, they were necessary to correct the harmful wrongs created by the state in maintaining the practice of slavery and in continuing uh, the mores and the norms and codifying uh, those racist norms into law. That was Jason Hill, author and philosophy professor at DePaul University. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website at cspan.org on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time.